her background, how she got involved with community organisations, um, what, what community organisations do right, um, how they can be effective. Uh, opportunities for student or young activists who, who want to continue their activism once they leave college. Um, and we also spoke a bit about the ability co-op. Um, she started interviewing me in the middle, which is a bit weird, but I actually appreciate it. Shows that she's listening, which is what you want from government. So yeah, really good podcast. Sit back and enjoy. So I suppose I'd like to start off talking about your background. So growing up, uh, what was your family home like? So I, I grew up I grew up in Portumna, um, on the banks of the Shannon. My house lives right on the banks of the Shannon. So I grew up um, doing everything you could possibly imagine to do with water. Um, childhood growing up, taking boats out in the lake. Um, there, there was... well, what were your parents? What were they doing? Um, mum was a nurse. My mum was a theatre nurse. She was a senior theatre nurse. She trained in the UK. Um, my father was a mechanic with the Office of Public Works. Yeah, mum came back um, to Ireland and she had us and they were late getting married in life, my folks. My father was 40 when he got married. My mum was 30, which wasn't the normal thing at that stage by any manner of means. And um, yeah, my mum couldn't drive when she got married, believe it or not, and they bought a house out in the country. So my memory of my mum was her learning to drive. We only lived three miles from the town, but it was great crack. Yeah, so she went back working later on in life then when she got us to national school so there's only i've only one sister i don't have any brothers or anything like that so when she got us to to um to fifth and sixth class she went back to work in a local nursing home yeah and so they're both working in the community how did you first start getting involved in community organizations i suppose uh, it all goes back to secondary school doesn't it and your involvement in school and your opportunities that you decide whether so I was the school I went to Portumna Community School um which was known as Portumna Secondary School then but Portumna Community School and I suppose we were the first ever TY the year I was in was the first ever TY and um yeah it was one of those times where you you really got a chance to to be different um to explore um, not having to be regimental within education without having to do all those subjects and it was new and it was great opportunity to be a leader so like I ran I was the production manager of the of the mini company at the time I had two I was training two volleyball teams that I got to Connacht and All-Ireland standards levels um, in community games so like you know I, I was a um, yeah, I had a business acumen at that stage and I was, yeah, I went on then to become head prefect. All right, yeah. And you um, you, you were quite involved with the local community before you became a councillor then, were you? Yeah, I, I was. I Well, it, like you're, when you're kids, look, at, I was always involved. I was involved when I lived in Mount Bellew, I set up the Malt House Players, which is an act of drama, comp, uh, one, uh, a drama um, organization that was never there before. I would have attended, I was on the circuit for acting for um, which would, you would have had um, one acts and three acts. So I was hugely involved in drama. Um, that's when I was involved, that's when I lived in Mount Bellew. I set up Mount Bellew Camogue Club when I moved to Mount Bellew. I was involved in the setting up of that, moved back then to Abinach Moy, and I was actively involved in the development committee in Abinach Moy. And I've been up my turned out to be a lovely parish since. 
and to a lot of good community work. And then I moved back to Portumna and I got involved in various, I, I turned back to my hometown um, with two children. I got involved in be it tidy towns, be it camogie, be it whatever was going on, I was interested. Scouts as the chairperson of Parents and Friends. So yeah, whatever being, whatever needed to do, I'd, I'd have no problem getting into. And what was it about you, do you think? Where, where did that come from? Like, made you want to get so involved? And see, the thing is, there's two sides of people. There's the person that'll sit back and criticize everybody for what they're doing and how they're not doing it right. Or there's the person who will actually get in and do something. So I'm the person that will get in and do something. So there's the two sides. I suppose it was that same modus operandi that made you go for counsellor. Um, it wasn't. We had a counsellor in the area at the time who lived 10 miles out the road. And I sat back and I assessed what he was doing. And he was doing a good job. But he wasn't still getting enough. So my attitude was, imagine if there was two of us going in from the one area bringing back the, the, the resources. That was the decision. Okay, well, what kind of resources were there? You're talking about money for roads, you're talking about money for footpaths, you're talking about money for whatever the community would need down to flower baskets for the tidy towns. Um, and you also had a, an involvement in strategic development plans, be it how you'd shape your community, be it with the county development plan, or be it with strategic plans for the development of the lakelands, which I, I'm very proud of living on the, the banks of the Shannon. So the development of that entire lakelands and being a, a Galway person, being a very proud Galway person, the development of the county. So yeah, I'd like to have a say in all of that. Like mm -hmm. to be fair to people, every generation does their bit. Um, I suppose my skill set would be negotiation um, and um, being able to bring people together. I'd have that mannerism. And what was your day-to-day -day like then as a counsellor? Like? Very difficult. I was a widow with three kids. My husband was only two years dead. Um, I was working full-time in Bank of Ireland. So I was holding down a full-time job. I was being a mother and a father to my family. I was the full-time earner and only earner into the house and um, still managed to attend all my meetings, still managed to, I would work till three in the morning and get up the next morning and get the kids up at half seven, get them out to school and go to work. So I have a huge work ethic. It's essential for a public worker. It is, it is, it, but it's also, it's essential as well to have a sense of community and a core value of what is right, what you feel is right. You said there you were, you were widowed. Do you think that brought you closer in with your community? Because that's something I've definitely noticed is that that kind of that, that kind of loss that you might fall back and rely on your community more and you might be more grateful after. Wondering if you noticed that yourself. No. No, you didn't. You just always had it. Mm. Okay. In actual fact, um, I would have thought um, in the beginning like you have to remember when I started as a counsellor, that is when we were talking about gender quotas. We talked about gender quotas back in 2014. Like there, 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 was a, there was a naivety there that I was involved. From one side, I went out to win. Don't ever deny that. But there was also a, a belief as well that she was no great, she has an interest. 
Any community organizations in particular that stand out in your mind for really serving their community? I think, to be honest with you, there's so many community organizations that do really good work. Every community organization, anybody who puts their head above the parapet to try and make change or to try and support a group or to try and um, have their town looking beautiful or to try and create a space for something that they believe is needed in an area, they're all brilliant, every one of them. There, there, there's the one that stands out in your mind. No, the greatest community organization in the country is the GA. Yeah, what are they doing right? They're bringing all the community together. And they could do an awful lot more. They have a long way to travel to the integration of women as part of their organization. But then again, I would say the, the Camogie Association have an awful lot to do as well. And I think that's down to power. I think it's down to having one president of both organizations and the exceptions of both sides, accepting that you could have a female the head of your presidency and maybe the amalgamation that needs to happen. So it has a long way to travel yet. But, but, but when Ireland was, um, when you need a sense of, look at the COVID at the moment and the COVID response, community response team is made up of an awful lot of the GA guys who weren't hurling on the pitch, the same way as an awful lot of the Camogie women who weren't on the pitch, or the footballers, or, or the ladies football. So it's that sense of community, that sense of parish club, Jersey first, then you put your county on. So what's the guy doing right that other organisations aren't? That makes them so well, so effective. Like, I'm talking as an observer now and just as a completely community person because um, I am not an office. I have to declare I'm the vice chairperson of Portumna Camogie Club. I have been the former chairperson. Um, and I would be, I, I really respect what they do. They, they nurture something very precious at a very early age. Um, and they bring people together with no payment in kind for, for doing that. They, might, they, they have members who love their grounds, who mind their grounds, um, who work with other community groups to ensure the grounds are kept right. But they have that open door policy of accepting all in to participate. And I do think they have a way to travel in disability. So they have a way to travel when I talk about the GEA, uh, of that sense of that pitch being more that community pitch, but I understand where it came from. Does that make sense? But they have a way to travel with including more women. Um, and they have a way to travel with inclusion of disabilities. But from a sense of community and a sense of pride in the parish, Jesus, you can't beat it. They put up the bunting, the, the, the cup of tea after the match and how they nurture their under six, eights and tens and they do their round robin games and they bring other parishes in and they put none of the cup of tea in the biscuit. And that sense of showing people that you can go out and participate and you still can come back in and have that cup of tea. I, I think that to me is what the essence of community is about, where there is, um, everybody's an equal inside the gate. That's a good answer. You spoke about their um, inclusions with disability. What can the GA do to include students or people with disabilities more? I definitely do think that Brian Covey has it right in Kilkenny, uh, or, or the Kilkenny organisation, or the Kilkenny County have it right. See, we get competitive very early in life. We don't need to get that competitive that early. Um, competition is good, competition is healthy. But I do think 
it's healthier to have the inclusion piece for as long as possible till you get to the from the under 14s under 16s like at that stage you know the cream that's coming to the top anyways because for jesus they're always making it to the first but you don't need to have that division created so early you you can actually keep it more about the inclusion the participation the practicing the skills um that part and i've seen it done this year i think it was this year no it wouldn't have been this year it would have been the year before sorry 2019 where i seen fela um how which was run where you did the participation silent sidelines um, where you done the 10 minutes on that everybody had to, and the referee had to ensure that everybody participated. And I'm only talking from Fela Camogie now point of view, which can do that with disabilities. Um, that's often important for the parents as well, that inclusion piece. That's where you keep the community together. And I think maybe somewhere along the lines that some, some clubs might be better than others. And I do think that Co Park um, need not just to be writing templates or writing good action plans, they need to ensure it needs to happen on the ground. Because I do know that they have good visions, but I don't know if you put up a sign that says, show respect, give respect, and then you go out and you play on the pitch and you hear bad language being used. That's not show respect, give respect. It's not at the right level um, by any manner or means. Same for inclusion of disabilities. The same also for how a pitch, the girls want the pitch and there might be a little bolster and all was taking place about access to grounds. We, we, we need to move on from that, but from a disability point of view, I think we don't need to make it as competitive at under eights as we need to make it competitive. Or at under tens, or at under twelves. So I always look at the, the Kilkenny model and I, I admire them for what they do. Yeah, yeah I, I played Gowell growing up and I couldn't agree more. It doesn't really have to ever get competitive. I mean, you can if you want to be, you just do your junior B, you know, and have the crack. Like, that's all it needs to be. Doesn't and you know what? You're right, because the, 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 the lads that know that they're junior B know that they're junior B, you know, and they're quite happy to be junior B. But you know what? Senior A is nothing without the junior B. Because they have nobody to train against. They have nobody to compete against. They need those lads on that pitch to at the end of a training session to ensure that match happens. The same way at a very early age, we need young children of all makes and models to show up, to participate for that inclusion and peace to be understood. Because the best leveler of all, the best place of inclusion is not in that structured way, but it should be more in the fun way. Um, and, and I do think on, on the bit, and I know we're focusing the conversation on the GA, but that's a compliment to the GA because I see they're in every parish around the country. I will have to say that, um, it's important for me to say that I do know that women's rugby has done an awful lot for women in sport as well uh, and for their inclusion piece because we, we never had women's rugby back in Britomina. If I think I had it when I was younger, I certainly would have played it. Um, but women's rugby is a, is a good space. They treat everybody very equally in rugby. Yeah, couldn't agree more. We'll segue on to uh, student organisations because I ourselves, the Ability Co-op, we're a student organisation in your work, previously as a councillor, then a TD, now as a Minister of State, how much would you engage with student advocates and organisations? I would say I would be good at engaging with student organisations. I, I remember on not long after getting elected councillor, I would have helped out with OGRA. I helped them out for three years in Sight and Galway on their recruitment campaign. 
one of their first years was their largest numbers they ever had, and the second was the second year that I was involved. Yeah. So you mentioned OGRA. What other uh, organizations, student organizations, would you have been involved with? Probably, you see, I, I would have met a lot of organizations on my way through politics, as in only in the last six years. And that's my role of spokesperson. But I wouldn't have been involved. Yeah, I mention it because obviously, you know, activists we want to make a difference. That's the whole point. So I'd just be interested to see what groups like, like you, you mentioned OGRA, and they definitely are so, somewhat influential anyway within Fianna Fáil and within other parties. Wondering, are there any other organizations, not necessarily just student organizations, organizations that have, in your experience, been influential in government? In shaping how government forms policy? Yeah. That's a really good question. That's a really, really good question. So I'll give you an example. Youth Work Galway, Youth Work Ireland, um, and Corlin and Oak, they shape how county councils focus as well. Corlin and Oak and Galway would have talked about, they would have used two years and they focused on mental health. They brought a really good focus to it. They brought such a good focus to it. They actually showed that they were able, with the system that they put in place, they were supporting schools by supporting 200 students every year. They actually were, they became a success by a really good plan. And it was one of those good plans that could have been rolled around. So I took Youth Work Ireland, Youth Work Galway, they focused on it. Like I couldn't believe how little funding they were getting. And they were supporting, they were getting referrals from Tusla. Like it was just amazing. They hit that gap that there was a, trans, a year, do you know, from sixth class to first year, it's quite a big jump. And if you're not supported, you might fall between the cracks or you might need a little bit extra support. They saw jigsaw chemists from 15, 16 years up, but there was nobody supporting that child that was making the transition. So they, to me, were very influential. I would genuinely have to say um, jigsaw, how they would, uh, uh, and jigsaw in relation to what they did to promote youth mental health and then cycle against suicide. Um, I thought they were phenomenal the way they operated. So that's all the mental health side of things. So they're, it's not that they're the, the, the biggest organizations or anything like that, but they were able to engage at a level that needed that engagement, I thought, myself personally. Okay. Um, another group, I met a group once. It's not a youth organization, but there would be an advocacy group. And they were to do with single men or separated men or single men with access to their kids. And like, I am not by any means with a law degree or anything else like that by, behind me, but I had to go and address them on King's End one day. And I am not joking you, um, they made a huge impact on me in relate to understanding how, and I'm not, the word unfair is on, on, unrecognized their voice might be in a particular presentation of law. And yeah, they made a huge impact. They were a good advocacy group. Yeah, I've, I've heard a lot about that, all right. The men's rights in Ireland were quite backwards in that way, how we kind of view women, we, women, women as the, the head of the family and that's all they are, you know, and that's kind of, that, that has that, that benefit, that to the detriment of both men and women. As I'm sure your experience. We'll talk about that more later.
you mentioned so is youth work Ireland jigsaw and this men's yeah. rights advocacy group whatever what are they doing and right cycle against suicide cycle and cycle against suicide yeah what are they what doing are they right do? cycle bringing the grassroots people with them is that it it's simple the messaging is simple during yeah messaging is simple same, same with Jigsaw and Youth Work Ireland. I think, yeah. And do you know there's another group there? Important again. Because I wouldn't have known any of these groups before that. Um, I have to talk about Tony O'Reilly and gambling. And I have to talk about the footballer from Armagh. So help me out here. Oshie McConville. Um, I don't know if you've known of Oshin McConville. No, I um, he would speak about gambling and everything else, but about creating awareness around gambling and how so wrong our gambling legislation is. The same way that Councillor Paul McCullough brought me out to Ballymun one night, um, along with other, Dara Cleary came out with me that same night. There was a good few of us went out and we met Keith Connolly, and I'm going to lose name Sarah Batten, I think, as well. Uh, and the girl that works for Paul at the moment, and I'm useless with names, um, was there. But they talked about children being used as drug mules. That's where my Fagan's Law bill came from. So the piece of legislation that Minister McEntee, Minister Brown are putting together at the moment, it came from the idea that we would reward children with a pair of runners, a Nike zip, uh, a nice jacket, to run the drugs from one side of the park to another. That to me is criminal, or for parents to use their kids to push out a bag of shopping out of the supermarket and not pay for it, but you can't touch the child and stuff like that. But teaching kids a bad example and not letting children have the life that children should have, that to me is shocking. You talk about another good person, Dr. Jeffrey Shanahan, um, the, the children's repertoire, Connor Mahoney at the moment, who is looking at children's rights, tenure ward. These are really good people who talk about just keeping core centers about protecting the child, the child's voice, voice and things. Because okay. the worst thing is the child to lose their childhood. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned funding, uh, how these organizations struggle to get funding. <clears throat> With regard to funding, yeah, well, I'd love to know as well, because our organization, we also struggle to get funding. If you'd have any advice how to get funding, but also just supports in general from the government. I always say that when there's a programme for government, a programme for government chimes with what different asks are taking place in society. Okay, so funding, see, funding comes in so many shapes and formats, but it's the stability of funding is where groups want to get to, service levels agreements. See, I sometimes think that if you're shaking the bucket, you're not doing what you should be doing is supporting that club, that organization. If you're out shaking the bucket, you're then missing the beat of what you are about because then it all becomes just about fundraising as opposed to the actual reason you formed to support. And that's where relationships are awful important, be it with TUSLA, be it with HSC, be it with Justice, be it whatever one of the departments that who, at the end of the day, who do you need to present to, 
and try and see, is there a way, or is there a, a mechanism for drawdown of funding? Core funding within the Department of Health, within the HSE, I, I have seen it with Parkinson's in Galway. Um, core funding made an awful difference to them. And they were the people that were able to keep um, 400 people that had Parkinson's out of ever needing to go through an A&E because they were able to fund to have therapy sessions, be it OT or physio, for these, for these people that had developed Parkinson's. So it's, it's all about, and the lady that was the head of that, who, who was gathering these people and was providing it and shaking the bucket and having the walks and the runs and everything else, she was exhausted. She was absolutely exhausted, but she could never get core funding. And the core funding comes a little bit with an acknowledgement from the funders that actually, or in her case, she had the backing of one of the, the, one of the main doctors or surgeons inside Galway because he was seeing nobody coming in that had hip fractures, that had accidents. And these people would be prone to fall because it would be Parkinson's. They would, but he wasn't seeing them through an A&E. A &E. But he could see that the work that she was doing um, by having, and they used to go to different hotels and they would do exercises together. It wasn't like it was one-to-one -one or anything else like that. They were able to exercise, but the family then were able to get the counseling. So he could see how this was really, really positive. So he had no problem then in endorsing that organization. And then after that, it was to find political support so as you could go and, um, and I won't say um, negotiate with the HSE, but to show your support to the HSE. And you know what? The HSE aren't stupid either because they could see they didn't have the people in the A&Es. They didn't have the people in hospital beds. And when funding dried up, and it did dry up at one stage, they had two people admitted through A&E that they wouldn't have seen in the previous three years. So straight away, it shows it was more cost efficient and effective. Okay. That's very interesting, yeah. And you mentioned those service level agreements. How could an organization go about achieving one of them with the HSE, for example, but also I assume there's that kind of agreement you could get one of them with other departments or maybe I'm wrong. No, and I, I do think, like, I talk about the HSE because I know in this particular group that we're talking about there, Really, it was if you had a champion, a partner, somebody who recognized the value of the group's work. And, and I will be honest with you, they, they genuinely did see the value of what it was worth by having two um, OTs or physios attending. They used to go to Clare Galway, they go to Galway, wherever, on a regular basis. Uh, and the service level agreements are quite difficult to get funding from. And in this case, they managed to get 79,000. But when you get the service level agreement, that adds into your core funding. So you know that you have that year after year. And that really makes an awful difference to any group or any organization. So at the moment, sorry, now at the moment, we're looking at that through the disabilities. So I'll give you an example. When I came into this department first, um, I met with some great officials. And one of them said to me, do you know, Minister, a number of years ago, Minister McGrath came up with um, respite packages. It was only 10 million we were able to pull together, he said. But that 20, 10 million was the best bank for this department in years. So I said, tell me a little bit more about it. How was it used? Why did you say it was best bank? So they were able to explain to me that 10 million, they used 8 million, yes, in respite in residential spaces and doing all that stuff. But two of that million, they used on camps just on summer camps. So they gave the likes of Galway Autism Partnership Group and other groups around the country. 
to be able to fund summer cramps. So it's the children that had various disabilities were able to be included in having camps, but they also provide money then that you could bring your sibling to the camps or allow the likes of Galway Autism Partnership recruiting staff that would be able to facilitate number of people attending the camp. So all of a sudden, persons with a disability able to bring their siblings because they all were able to cater for the needs of everybody. So I did that again this year. Um, and I think it's the best bang for a book where I go back to the inclusion. So I have different organisations around the country that work through their HSE. And I've met some of them from Donegal Springs to mind. We're just trying to sort out two service providers down in Donegal, just like talking about here. They support about 400 families. They're struggling for 79,000 euros each. Just madness when you look at the size of Donegal and what they do. Isn't it the best bang for book to give them their 79,000, support their families, support the kids, support their siblings, and it give everybody a lift. So that's what I'm working on with different HSCs and different CEOs. And I do believe there's an appetite there. Have you come up against problems in this or anything like that? Funding, like we just, we're not really eligible for funding from the government. We're eligible for funding from the college itself. But like, I'm sure you heard there was, um, <clears throat> was it your, your, yourself, you, uh, <clears throat> you were, I know your name was attached to 20 million in funding. It was uh, strengthening disability Ooh, services. Yes. So, yeah, that was, uh, that's not, el student advocacy groups aren't eligible for that. Like the Trinity Disability Service was eligible for that. But us as a student advocacy group, we're not eligible for that because we're not like an official disability service and we're not like registered at all with the HSE so, or anything. All right. So who would you support if you got money in the morning? If you got money in the morning, I, I'm, I'm interviewing you now, but if you got money in the morning, who would you support? So there were, we, we have a lot of students like I almost failed first year because and like right at the moment, I'm an honours student and I'm doing really well. <clears throat> I really struggle to adjust. <clears throat> I could have failed and have to repeat first year. We have many students who work with us, students with disabilities, who end up failing and repeating first year. They, they more than likely have to, or they disproportionately have to repeat first year. They fail years. So what we would do is we would get enough OTs in and we'd, we'd interview. We'd meet up with every single student with a disability regularly so that we could identify, like, like I, I wasn't going to lectures. And I didn't actually realize the importance, which might sound stupid, but it just, I just couldn't comprehend the importance of it. I just thought I'd do the exam and I said the exam. So if I, if I had had someone to tell me to do that, which sounds stupid, but it's true. And a lot of people are like that. So being able, having the supports of maybe that, that, yeah, you're saying they're 80 grand a year. That's like about two OTs or yeah, one OT and then another part-time OT, enough to meet up with everyone once a week, see how they're getting on. Um, so yeah, that's what we do with the money. And I'm sure like when you mentioned there, showing that we're providing value, that's what we're trying to do, show that we show Trinity that we're providing value by lowering dropout rates. That's tough. We have to measure the data and stuff, whatever. But and that's that and see, but but I can't understand. Um so you're you would be for an opportunity as to see how that research and would not is there nobody there that would on this research work to assist you or anything else like that that could apply for funding from a research point of view I that would help you gather the data or have you, you gathered it already and the college itself uh, collects the data at uh, the disability service we'd have to um 
yeah, it would have to be a research project um, and we'd have to get scientists um, in from the college. Then. You wouldn't need to get scientists at all. You'd need to get the people training in the faculties to participate on it and gather the data that way. Like who? Well, so would you would you not, do you not train OTs in, in, in the college? Yeah, we do. you not train OTs. physiotherapists? Do you train physios? No. But you train OTs? Um, well, the college, we, we, they hire OTs, yes. Oh, they hire, but there, there's no training. There's no fourth-year students or anything else like that in the, in the college? Oh, the college, oh, yeah, there is, yeah. Yeah, sure, you have them on campus already. You're ahead of the posse. So they could help you in gardening that information, couldn't they? Yeah, that's a great point, yeah, reaching out to the students. Use the students. It's not work experience for the students. Yeah, as well, be. look at it like this. No, I, I must, I must. So I see exactly where you're coming from, you see, but then it needs to be under what what wing or what department within the college would it fall under that then you could ensure that you have that that support that's required, like that support that's required is unbelievable. Did you find it good? Yeah, from the disability, yeah, I found yeah. them very helpful. You know, instrumental and I couldn't have got to where I am without them. And in fairness to Minister Harris, he is after doing a serious investment over the last number of weeks as well. Into yeah. to, and, and that's the most interesting piece about my work at the moment. Like, I only know my job to take disabilities out of health. I've never, I never see myself in health. I see I'm on the move. I'm getting it out of here. And it sees as opening the opportunities to work with the likes of Minister Harris in um, in and higher education, so as we can fund in together to see how we can assist. And, and I do believe this is a great appetite to recognise. See, we support everybody in the early years. We support everybody by then doing assessment needs and giving therapeutic sessions, and we support everybody then and whichever way through through secondary school. But then it falls short. Then you make your way to college, and some people need that support, that guidance, that direction, that input. And that's where we have to find the next piece of funding to do it. And we also need to structure it in a way is that it's data-based, that the money makes sense to invest. And the colleges should be applying for the funding for it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I'd like to uh, talk about, so we're, we're made up of about, about eight students on our leadership team and another 50 in our forum who kind of help out with us. We're all student activists and we enjoy it. Um, and we enjoy helping contributing to our community. Uh, with the focus on disability work, is there, what kind of careers are there out there for students who are passionate about disability activism who want to continue their work, but also get paid for it? Oh, I want to get paid for it. See, disability and where we're going with the UN Convention, like employment is where we're falling short in disability. We're falling so far short in, in employment. Um, and it's the piece you're talking about. We fall short in education. We fall short in, in employment. We fall short on those two things because we don't have the supports to bring people to the next step, to, to do that transition, to bridge the gap to actually get people set up. We don't have the supports either to actually support employers. Like there, there is a great opportunity there 
for that advocacy, but also a business to actually work with employers and with remote learning and with, with, the, the, and with remote work with COVID 2019. God, it has opened so many doors, but I wonder how many people will actually grasp it to support, to advocate uh, and to actually it's nearly like a recruitment agency. And I, I don't mean it like that, but you know what I'm trying to say? Somewhere along the line, yeah, I, you need to hire. So we, we want to recruit um, admin people. So we know how to recruit admin people. But we need to know how can we recruit a person that might be sensory based or people that need to have a quiet room, all of these different things. So we, there's employers out there that go, yeah, I'd be quite happy if they're able to do all this work, but let them work from home, which is in their own space and everything else like that, yeah. or find the digital hubs in their community. So there's a directory required is what I'm trying to say, I suppose, Harry, in a roundabout way. There's actually a directory. There's, there's a huge need for people to develop a one-stop um, um, directory of, and I'm trying to do this within the department, of where one stop for employment, for one stop for education, for one stop if you're not diagnosed and wondering where to get assistance off, wherever around the country. And then I do think I, that bridge and that gap in education and in employment, I think there's a directory or there is um, a recruitment. And it sounds wrong when you're saying, because we're not supposed to discriminate and we don't discriminate or anything like that. But still, the transition is so difficult and still the, the opportunities for people with disability to participate in employment can be very challenging. And it's not there's somebody there to identify the challenges to go, well, actually, for you to be full time working, you would need the support from A and B. But if you had that, you would be able to hold down a full time job or you would be able to hold down an education or you wouldn't just think you needed to do exams, but you needed to do study. That, does that make sense? No, it does. Yeah, what you're saying is, yeah, um, that's kind of, there are organisations out there like not so different. Uh, they try and put uh, students with disabilities, you know, into to jobs and there are organisations, but there's no one directory, like you and said. And that's what's needed. So, so you're throwing out names that could be new to me for the first time. I could throw out names that are new to you. But we don't have a one-stop shop that signposts you. So in mental health, they're, they're trying to get um, Pathfinder over the, and the children's ombudsman would be really, really in favour of getting Pathfinder done. Because Pathfinder is, if I'm 12 or if I'm a mother that has a child 12 years of age and they're struggling to move from sixth class, where do I go in Galway? So you should be able to look down about it to your one-stop shop. Yes, of course, you start with your GP, da, da, da. but these are the steps of where you can actually access assistance in a timely fashion. And they're all directing you the one way so that in order to prevent crisis. So with disabilities, the same sort of one-stop shop. Yeah. I would love to see everybody achieve their whole potential with the opportunities of in, in education, employment, because I think the day of saying you can't access employment because of accommodation reasons with, with the employer, that's nearly gone because of, because of COVID. And the other side is employers want to employ but they need to be reassured, they need to be encouraged, and they need to be supported. And maybe we're not great at supporting them from those point of views. So if something breaks down, or if it's a, not everybody's great at communicating, and that, that's not just a person with disability, that's a person that's an employer as well. Sometimes you need a medium, sometimes you need somebody to, to, to do that transition period with both. You mentioned that one-stop shop, is, is that something you're working on in the government? Um, 
I'm looking at that from an autism point of view. I'm working on autism strategy at the moment. What are you doing with autism strategy? Well, we don't have one. I don't know if you know this, we don't have one, um, regrettably. Um, we have an autism plan, um, but we don't have a strategy. The UK had a strategy, Malta have a really good strategy, Canada have a strategy. Um, in the past, it wouldn't have been seen like there was a need for a strategy because I thought a plan would be okay. But a plan isn't okay. You need to have a strategy because when you have a strategy, you can bring in all the stakeholders into the conversation. And with a strategy, you can have the one-stop shop. You can have your directory. Um, and you can look to education. You can look to employment. And you can look to it from the earliest years to later on to ensure that we have the whole-of-life approach to it. So, yeah, I'm working um, with Adam Harris on it. He's been so supportive in giving me information. I have a second year student by the name of Tierna Murphy, who has given me endless weeks of time. Um, he's a second year Trinity Law student um, up from Cork, needing to keep himself busy. And um, between lectures, that's what he's reading and researching for me. And he's a 10 page publication done for me, which we will start pushing it out a little bit further. If COVID wasn't my biggest roadblock at the moment, but I have a lot of work done behind the scenes. And I'm sort of excited, to be honest with you. I would love to see uh, a network disability team with a telephone line, um, with a one-stop shop, with a really good webpage, totally literally for disabilities, but with a huge branch out for autism to support families and children and adults as they get older. Uh, you talk about yeah, advocacy. Are there any advocacy groups that you interact with that have uh, paid positions because I know, like you mentioned there, the Tiernan Murphy is all voluntary. All we do with the Ability Co-op is voluntary. Obviously, as we get older, we'll need jobs. Are there any kind of activism groups out there with paid positions? Well, I'm sure as I am gets funded. Um, and they do a power of good work in relation to, to advocacy, to, to, to be fair with you. Like, there's 496 various different disability organisations. Um, and they, some are voluntary, some are funded. Um, the bigger ones are very well funded. Um, but the dial is changing of what's required within advocacy, as in, um, the dial is changing because in the past, everything was about residential and emergency spaces. I don't know if, if you're aware of that, but that's when we talk disability, we always talked institutionalization. Now we talk decongregation. But there's still a lot of emphasis about having people in set structures without having them in set communities and supporting them within the communities. So if you were to ask me, we need to see more of that. Um, at the moment, we're discussing the ability projects to 27 different ability groups around the country. They got funding to the ESF funding from Europe three years ago and 18 million euros, great work supporting 1,800 various students of various abilities um, with disability, getting them through education, getting them out into employment. But um, because COVID happened, it probably won't finish and it needs to finish for us to have the data to see the, the inputs from it. And I think it's unfortunate that sometimes pilots come and pilots go and we seem to salad tape or plaster our way through without saying, really, this is a really, really good model. 
We need to hang on to it. We need to find exchequer funding for it and to work with the various ability groups that I talk about now um, to fund those jobs to support these people um, in the community through their education because everybody's unique. Yeah, that's so true. Everyone's unique. Um, in your experience as a TD and now as a Minister of State, um, have you seen much um, representation of people with disabilities? Yes. I um, sit on the NDA, the National Disability Authority. Uh, they meet very regularly and the NDIS. I have, there's, and there, then there is the, the new group that I have set up as part of getting ready for Geneva 2022. Um, Inclusion Ireland are they, are partnered with disability DFI, they're partnered out with as I am, the DPOs, and I'm going to forget somebody there, but there's a there's a group of six. And then we are to have 20 more people as part of the network participation coalition, uh, and who's 20, and 90 people applied for it. And I made an executive decision, and I have to take sole responsibility for this myself. Um, I've met all 90 parts of the group um, because there was lots of individuals there that could participate. Those people, young people um, whose parents wanted to participate and be the voice of the child that had profound disabilities. The same way there was the farmer that had the accident that, that lost the leg um, that wanted to participate. The same way that um, like somebody who had an accident, I talk about accidents and like, or had a car crash and neurologically affected, or people to understand the people with autism, the different neurological disabilities that are out there. So as we have a better, wider understanding that it's, it doesn't just have to be in a chair to see a person with a disability. We don't need to see a person with a physical disability or a profound disability to say, oh, they have a disability. We need to have an understanding of what disability is and not to be narrow-minded on it. So that's why I, I um, went from 20 to 90 um, on that decision. And I think it was a good one. So, so we'll have more people with disability included in making decisions and eventually get to the space where people with disabilities shape the policy that they have to live through. Okay, and I have one more question and we'll finish up there. You mentioned how, and I, I'd agree, I, 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 in my experience, the, the supports for students with disabilities in primary and secondary is pretty good. And I do believe I've experienced myself, it does drop in third level. I do believe there's more that could be done in second level, but we won't look at that. In third level, what, what can be added? What can be done? What can colleges do to support their students uh, with disabilities to stop them from you know, falling between the cracks and not making it into the workforce? I think, um, and but, but when we talk about disabilities, if we talked about it in the round about also that inclusion piece, and that diversity piece. If we could talk about disabilities, inclusion, diversity, and that takes in racism and everything else like that. In, in the, if we could look at it from that social aspect, I prefer to look at it that way because what I would say is you would need to talk to Imelda Byrne over in UIG and how we need to get designated staff in paid positions, um, how they can actually go back again to that one-stop shop within the universities 
to put the right people in place to do the right signposting, fund them to do the job uh, and actually give them the opportunities for people who are coming through. Um, so is that people, when they go to sit an exam and if you need to have it in a quiet area, that's not referred to as the sick bay, you know? So it's, that's what happens in some colleges that that's how it is designated. If you have made a special request, you're in the sick bay. That's, that's horrific actually, but that's what's going on. So we need to fund the colleges to create the spaces and for that whole inclusion and diversity piece. So as that people with all abilities and none get supported. And we'll finish there. So thank you very much, Anne. And that's it. Yeah, our longest ever episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you did, follow us on, we're on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and Facebook. So give us a follow to keep us up to date and to see our next podcast. And be sure to follow us on Spotify or wherever you're listening to this. And yeah, hope you enjoyed. Take care.